You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Today we're closing up, we're wrapping up the letter, 1 Corinthians, here in chapter 16. We'll be covering verses 13 through 34, or I'm sorry, 24, <laughs> wrong Bible, just verse 24, 13 to 24. And we're looking at Paul's closing remarks. And I'd like to pray one more time with you and just ask the Lord to bless this time in his word. Jesus, we do come before you this morning and we do ask once again that you, who were the word in the beginning, and that word that became flesh and walked among us, Lord, we pray that today you would send your spirit to us and that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us into the truth. And Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. And Father, that we would be challenged and convicted and corrected and rebuked if need be. And Father, that we as a church would just be made alive in you today to go forth from this place, Lord, and to, to accomplish that which for which you send us, Lord. Salt into a world that needs it. Lord, light into a world that is dark. And Father, love into a world that is hurting, and hope into a world that has none. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, next to the one who doesn't pay his bill, the doctor's most annoying patient is the one who doesn't follow his instructions. The one who refuses to follow orders. Recently, it was estimated that between 16 to 90% of all patients leave half-empty pills or pill bill bottles. They cheat on their diets. They continue to smoke or dip or whatever it is, and, or whatever the vice might be. They never return for those checkups despite careful prescriptions and cautious advice. Now, brothers, lest you think I might be judging you, let me tell you I am guilty, guilty, guilty of all those same things. When my wife was pregnant with... Uh, our fourth child in Costa Rica, we went to the doctor all of twice in nine months, okay? Uh, we, 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 were, we were just living on the edge, I guess, you know, not very wise, uh, but we were about five hours away from our doctor, and uh, it was quite a journey to get there um, at that time. Not that there wasn't doctors closer uh, in case of emergency, but um, anyways, all that to say... I would have to say the same is probably true for a pastor. As a pastor's heart for his congregation, for his people, is that they would hear the truth, but not only hear it, they would begin to walk in it, right? Apply, obey that truth in their lives. And it seems that Paul felt this way too. Paul could identify with those doctors of you out there. He knew what it was like to pour out his heart to his people, to lead them and guide them into the truth, and then to have no way of knowing whether or not they were going to put into practice everything that he has written to them about. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we get the idea that Paul has poured out his heart to the Corinthians. He's written to them as a loving brother. He's written to them as a founding father. And he's written to them as their spiritual leader. And yet he has no way of knowing if they're going to follow the counsel that he has laid out on these pages. And as he finishes the letter, he does so 
by commanding the church to be strong, to be courageous, to be loving. And he ends up his letter by giving them some commands to follow, as well as an exhortation or encouragement there. He gives them some greetings from the fellow believers, a final warning, and his blessing. And then that's it. That's the end of this letter. So let's begin in verses 13 and 14, where we see his final commands. Read with me in your Bibles, follow along. It says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. So Paul gives five commands here, just firing them off rapid fire. I mean, it's like a machine gun here. Just boom, 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 boom. He says, first of all, you need to watch. He's telling the church in Corinth not only to be prepared for the Lord's coming. Remember chapter 15. Remember that in chapters, in verses 51 and 52 that Paul spoke of the rapture. He spoke of the Lord's imminent return, his coming to gather the church, a separate event, I'll remind you, from the second coming of Christ. Remember, we talked about all of that. The reason we know that is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Jesus promised his disciples he would come back for them, to take them, to receive them to himself, and he was preparing a place for them. Jesus never did that, so we know that that still has to happen. Jesus still has to return for his church, his people, his disciples. And when that happens, we need to be ready. We need to be living a life that is watching and waiting for that moment. You and I as Christians, we need to have an attitude that says, Lord, I'm prepared. Lord, if you were to come back today, that's all right. Because I'm living my life in such a way that I'm ready right now. Then secondly, Paul says, or not only just to be prepared for the Lord's coming, that's what that's directly related to, but he's also talking about being on the alert for the flesh and the enemy. Being on the alert for the flesh and the enemy. Now, we know that we have three principal enemies as Christians. We deal with the world, the world seeking to conform us to its image. It wants us to be a certain way and think a certain way and act a certain way. But we know that the Christian is called to instead be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That happens as we read the Word, as we have a relationship with Jesus through prayer, through meditation on the Word of God, the things of God. But we're also dealing with the enemy of our soul, which is Satan. Satan has got it out for our souls. And he's got angels that have fallen with him from heaven that are employed in his service working in the world together with it to entice, to tempt, to lure you away. And then thirdly, that enemy within, right? I am my own worst enemy. <laughs> my flesh is the, probably the biggest enemy that I deal with in my life. And your life as well. You guys know the battle well. If you're a Christian seeking to please the Lord, you know the battle of the flesh. But Paul says, be on the alert against these things. We need to be watchful. We need to be praying. Remember when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say to his disciples? He said, watch and pray. For the flesh is willing, but the, or, sorry, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we're to be watchful, Paul says, as a church, and be prepared for the Lord's coming and be on the alert against the enemy. But secondly, he says there to stand fast in the faith. 
That means simply to be rooted in Christ. To find your identity in Jesus Christ. Not in the things that you do. Now this is especially difficult for some of us. Especially here in America where we live in a culture where a lot of the culture is your value, your worth is placed on what you do as a person. But it's different here in Jesus. In Jesus, he's not concerned so much with your actions and your choices and your attitudes as much as he is with your trust in him, your relationship with him. He loves you. He loves you not because of what you do, but because of who you are. He simply loves you. And that that is so hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're raised in this society in a culture where that's not the case. So much of our worth and value is placed on on what we do and the choices we make and the things that that, that we are involved in in this world. But Paul says, no, you need to stand fast in the faith. That means be rooted in Christ. Let your identity be found in Him and in the good news. You're to continue to trust in Christ and not in yourself. You're not to trust that you're always going to do the right thing. Because you're not going to always do the right thing. You need to find that your trust is in Christ, not in your own flesh. Then he says to be brave. This word in the Greek language is uh, andridzomai, and it literally says, act like men. Okay? I like that. Can I get a little growl from the men out there? Urgh. Yeah, there you go. So, okay. We got some manly men here at the church. I knew we did. But the King James Version actually says, quit ye like men. Sum it up. It, it just is saying, act like men. Now, Paul is not some sexist chauvinist who's out there going, yeah, you all got to be like men, okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's doing is he's honoring a trait, a a good trait, that men have. And that that, that trait is that men have this built into them, this idea that in the face of the enemy, we're expected to be brave. We're expected to display courage. If somebody comes into my house to harm me and my family, Who's the one that is going to be coming out the door first? My wife. I'm going to push her through the door, right? No. No, it's supposed to be me, right? It's supposed to be me. I'm to put myself in that place. And that's an honorable thing. You know, today in the world, they want to rip on men for thinking this way, you know? Have you ever opened the door for somebody and they just look at you and like, what are you doing that for, you know? And you're like, oh, I thought I was being honorable. I thought I was was being virtuous here. But, you know, sometimes the world doesn't call that virtuous anymore. I don't care. I'm still going to open the door. Listen, we're to be brave, we're to act like men in the face of the enemy, Paul is saying. Now, he's speaking specifically about this this bravery, this displaying of courage, and that's what Paul is commanding all believers to do. He's saying, listen, you're fighting a war. You're You're at war. Now, it's not a physical war. There's not bullets and guns and things like that, but it's a spiritual war. And you've got to be aware that in the face of the enemy, you're going to have to stand up. You're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be brave in the face of the enemy. And listen, for those of you Christians that have had to do this, you know what Paul is talking about. It is very difficult to do. It is very difficult to stand up in the face of the enemy and to be the only one who's being brave. In your workplace, 
in your friends, when you're hanging out in social gatherings, to stand up for what you believe in and to not be afraid. It's not easy to do, but we're called to do it as Christians in this world. We can be brave, though. Because we fight from a position of victory. Remember chapter 15? We fight from a position of victory. God has given us the victory. And so we may have some setbacks. We may have some failures. We might show some fear in the face of the enemy from time to time. But we can keep coming back to the fact that we are victorious in Christ. And that God calls us to be brave. And we are going to grow and and, and continue to pursue that kind of a life being brave in the face of the enemy. Fourthly there, we're to be strong, Paul says. Be strong. Now this also, like the other commands, it refers to their position in the gospel. Every one of these commands is, is, is tied into the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be strong in the gospel? Well, it means that we put our faith in the power of God and not trusting in our own flesh or the wisdom of men. It means that instead of trusting in my own strength to get it right and to do all these things, I'm trusting in Christ and the Holy Spirit to come alongside of me and to help me to be strong. It means that we continue to preach Christ and Him crucified. Remember this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, or chapter 2. Paul talks about, hey, I came to know one thing among you, and that was Christ and Him crucified. We need to stand our ground on that. It means that we never forget the good news, and we never ever stop sharing it with the world around us. Church, we are living in the times of a culture war. We are living in times when we are facing lots of pressure from the outside. Pressure that seeks to crush us that seeks to cause us to give in to the demands of the world. We're facing pressure from the LGBTQ LGBTQ movement that wants to conform us to their image. We're facing pressure from the sexual revolution in our day that seeks to conform us to its image. We're facing the politicization of everything in our lives from the outside world, seeking to conform us to its image. Church, we need to be strong like never before. We need to be rooted and standing in the good news of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Amen? That's what our lives are about. That's what we're founded on. And we need to remain strong. The Bible tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do we renew our minds? We spend time with Jesus. We spend time in the presence of the King, the God who created us, and the word that He has given to us and revealed His personality and His character to us. We spend time with Him in prayer and meditation and, 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 and relationship. That's how we be strong. And lastly, He says, let all things be done with love. This is definitely tied into chapter 13. Paul's beautiful chapter, his exhortation there to remind us that love is supreme simply because love is going to last forever. Love lasts forever. Now when Paul says, let all these things be done in love, he's referring to all the things that he's discussed with them in this letter. Now let's just think for a minute. What has Paul covered in this letter? What are some of the issues? Well, he's, he's covered quarreling, 
divisions over leadership, their poor attitude towards him as the founding father and spiritual leader of the church. He's talking about their lawsuits amongst each other, Christians taking each other to court, creating a bad testimony with the world outside. He's talking about their husband to wife relationships within the church. He's talking about their abuse of the weaker Christian by those who had become puffed up with their supposed knowledge. Oh, we know things. And you're just, you're just you know, behind it. You're behind the knowledge. You don't have the knowledge. They were abusing each other. They were also abusing the poor and the less privileged in the Lord's Supper. They were also failing to edify one another in their corporate worship services, overemphasizing the gift of tongues, not paying and not giving prophecy its proper place. All of those things were happening in this church. And Paul says, listen, it all comes down to love. It comes down to love in the end. Let all things be done with love. That phrase, all things, it ties into everything that Paul has talked about in this letter that was going on in the church. Guys, our heart should be to build one another up. The church is not this building. The church is not this place geographically. The church is you guys. The church is you, men and women, boys and girls, young people. The church is people. And God desires to build people. My heart as your pastor is to build you up, to see you be edified, to see you be built up so that you begin to minister to one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that's one of the reasons the church exists. God sends a pastor teacher to a church so that he may equip the saints for what? For the work of the ministry. I'm not the one who's going to make it to every hospital room. I'm not the one who's going to make it to pray for every need. I'm not the one who's going to be there to share the gospel with your friends. But guess what? God hasn't called me to be that one. He's called you to be that one, church. He's called you to be built up and edified that you might do the work of the ministry. And so that is what Paul commands. Next we come to his exhortation in verse 15. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. It's the province there that Corinth was located in. And that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. Let's pause here for a moment. What a great encouragement from the Apostle Paul. Stephanus sets a great example for the believer. Notice that he and his house had devoted themselves, it says, to the ministry of the saints. This simply means they were servants. They served. That's all that that means. Now, the King James Version of the Bible actually says that they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I like that. I like that. You see, of all the things that you could get addicted to in this world... Wouldn't it be great if we were addicted to serving the Lord through serving His people? That is something to be addicted to, if you ask me. 
Now, it, it literally means what, what it says in the New King James, that they were devoting themselves to it. But what it shows us, you guys, is that we've got a, we've got a, a hole in our hearts, so to speak. We have been created for a purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that you have been saved and set apart by God for good works. You're not saved by the good works that you do, but you are saved unto or for those good works. God's created you guys to be doing something. He's created all of us with different gifts, different talents, different life experiences. And God desires that you would be a good steward of those things, those resources that he has given to you. And that you would use them to serve others. Stephanus consecrated himself. Fortunatus and Achaicus, they consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart to God specifically to be a blessing by serving others. That's a powerful and encouraging word. Listen, as a pastor, as your pastor here at Calvary Chapel Paris, I want to take this opportunity this morning to tell those of you guys that serve, and and, and there's a great portion of you that are serving in this church. It blows me away. I love it. But I want to thank you, and I want to tell you what a blessing you are in our church. You don't do it for accolades, I know, or at least you shouldn't be. But when you serve, you bless not only me, you bless all the people who attend this church. My children are blessed by those of you that volunteer in the children's ministry and take the time to pour into their lives. Oh, we talk about what you go over in those classrooms. <laughs> we talk about the good. We talk about the bad. And I am thankful for the workers in this church, not just in the children's ministry, the coffee ministry, the greeters, the ushers, everybody that makes this place happen on a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Tuesday. I am thankful for you guys. But it's not me that you're really ultimately blessing. You're blessing the people that attend this church. You're blessing those that show up on a Tuesday night for a meal after a long, hard day at work, and they're ready just to relax and go to class and learn something. You're blessing those that come to church and they haven't had their coffee yet. You're blessing those that might have had a tough week, and they see your smiling face when you come through the door. And you know what? You don't have to be in those positions to be a blessing to others either. We all know that it's, uh, it's, it's only an invitation away to invite someone out to eat a lunch after church or to grab a cup of coffee during the week or to be a, a part of their lives by praying for them. What can I pray for you for? We bless others. You bless others. And listen, you're a breath of fresh air. You're a cool, of drink water, a cool drink of water, a true blessing. Let me say it in the words of the prophet Isaiah. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a parched land. I love those word pictures. That's what a servant is like. If you're a servant, if you're like Stephanus, listen, I thank you this morning for being a hiding place for the weary, a shelter from the storm, a stream in the desert, and a shady place in a weary land. Thank you for doing that. And the last thing that I want to say about these verses is to call your attention to verse 16, where Paul exhorts the Corinthians to submit to such men. Now that submission that he's calling for, it's not a dictator type submission, 
but rather it is a submission that is based on and motivated by love. This kind of submission is only truly found in a Christian community. It speaks of the relationship of Christians that live in community and they voluntarily yield in love to servant leaders. Paul wrote of this submission in the first letter that he ever penned to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 through 13, I'll read it to you. He said this, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. Man, let me exhort you, church, As a pastor, one of the greatest things that you do to help me and to help our church is to live peacefully with each other, living in peace with each other, working through things with each other. Hey, we're all stinky people when it comes down to it. We've all got faults. We've all got our flaws. But learning to be Christians in those difficult situations and seeking for peace as much as we can with one another, that is a great thing to pursue. We come now to the third uh, part of the message this morning, Paul's greetings to the church in Corinth. He sends them greetings in verse 19. He says, the churches of Asia greet you. Those were the various churches that Paul had a hand in planting on his first missionary trip. He says also, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. In verse 20, all the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. So let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla for a second here this morning. These two have an interesting history with Paul. These two were Jews who had been forced to leave Italy by Claudius Caesar because of rioting in Rome uh, because of the preaching of Jesus Christ. The Christians were preaching Christ and it was causing rioting amongst the Jews and so Claudius Caesar was like, you're all out. He kicked them out. And so they migrated there to Corinth. Now it seems that Priscilla and Aquila were, st- were already believers when they met Paul in Corinth. And they formed a bond. They, they, they formed a bond of friendship. And it was also because they shared an occupation. They were both tent makers. And Paul himself was a tent maker. So after Paul left Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, they traveled with him to Ephesus. And Paul left them behind in Ephesus for a while. And it was there that they actually met Apollos, a Jewish convert to Christianity who is preaching powerfully in the synagogues in Ephesus. But get this, Aquila and Priscilla, they came alongside of Apollos and they shared the gospel with him and helped him to understand the way of Christianity better. So they were helping the kingdom. And Paul's got this community going with all these people here. It's amazing when you see it. Now, as they're in Ephesus now with Paul, they're also sending their greetings back to the Corinthian church. And then we see also that all the brethren with Paul send their greetings. We don't know exactly who that was, but we do know this. Paul traveled with several uh, companions. And and it could have been Luke. It could have been Timothy. uh, It could have been uh, Titus at this time. We don't know exactly who it was. But there was always people traveling with him. That's a good word. That's a good, that's a good uh, example. To see Paul as, as an apostle, he's, he's pouring himself into others. He's raising up others. He's looking for other men that he can train. 
And we also see greetings from Paul himself in verse 21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. And then now Paul moves on to his final warning in verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Or in some translations it says, Maranatha. Paul is closing out this letter, guys, with an expression of passionate warning to anyone in the church who might be playing around. Paul is saying, listen, you need to love Jesus. Those that do not love Jesus are going to face judgment. So Paul is expressing this in a passionate way. You see the way that he says that? It's kind of out of the blue. He's closing out his letter and he's like, you know what? I can't let this go without this strong warning at the end of this letter. He says, love the Lord because this is essential for a Christian. If you are a Christian here this morning, you need to love Jesus. So let me ask you, church, how is your love for Jesus this morning? Or maybe we should start by asking this question. Do you know that Jesus loves you? That's what we need to ask first. Why? Well, 1 John chapter 4.19 says that we love Him because He first loved us. If your life has never been impacted by God's love first for you, it's kind of hard to love Him. In fact, you're probably scratching your head and you're going, why do I have to love Jesus? Why would I have to love God if I don't even know who this guy is? I don't even understand him. To me, it seems like Christianity is a bunch of rules and regulations, and I've got to conform or else I'm going to hell. Listen, that's, that's, you can put it in more inaccurate terms. You've got to understand something. God, as your creator, has created you to be in a relationship with him. You will only find satisfaction and fulfillment in life when you understand that He loves you, that He is for you, and that He has given you everything that you need in order to be successful in life and in order to step into eternity in heaven, to have heaven along with that eternal life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Do you ever get blown away in your mind about the love of God for you? It blows me away. When Michael was singing that song, I can so relate because I have been that one who is straight away. I've been that one who has gone my own way thinking, no, I, I know what's good for me. I know what's best for me, God. Or, man, I'm really distracted by this temptation and I want to be the one who has fun right now. I've been that guy. I know who I am. And when I realize that God still loves me, it blows me away. If you have, if you know that feeling, then you also know the feeling that comes after that when you say in return, Lord, I love you. Lord, I love you. And then Paul says there in in that verse, he says, Lord, come. He finishes that verse by saying, Lord, come. So listen, this is a very serious warning. But it's also coupled with this this kind of this Aramaic 
word. It's called Maranatha in the manuscripts. And that word itself is a prayer that the Lord Jesus Christ would come. You see, those that love Jesus, they can say that word, Maranatha. Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, it's my prayer that you would come. I'm ready. I'm ready for eternity today. That's what that prayer is saying. Now, it's a natural reaction for the person that loves Jesus. You want him to come. You want to be with him. You're not worried about judgment because you know it's not about you. It's about him. (laughs) That's the awesome thing about Christianity. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. He is faithful. He is good. It's about his salvation, not what I can do to add to my own salvation. Paul closes his letter with this, his blessing in verse 23 and 24. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. As I close out this morning, let me ask you, church, how's your love for the Lord this morning? Just think about that question for a moment. I know we're thinking about what comes next, but let's just pause for a moment. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to place his finger on our hearts. Let's ask ourselves, how is my love for the Lord this morning? Are you loving him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength? Or has your love for the Lord perhaps grown cold and grown stale? Maybe you've gotten used to church and you've been calling it in. You're used to going through the motions now. You come to church, you read your Bible, you pray, but it's meaningless to you. Maybe you've become numb because of the busyness that is in your life. That, That happens sometimes. We live in a world that goes a mile a minute these days. And we can actually become numb because of all the busyness in life. Listen, I hope and pray that this morning you can stop for a moment and just think about how much God loves you. Think about how much the Lord loves you. It's not a question of whether or not He loves you. He proved His love for you when He died for you. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. John chapter 15, verse 13, that's Jesus. Paul preached Christ, you see. He preached Christ crucified because that is the central focus of life, of history, of everything. You see, at the cross, God's mercy and love met with his truth and his justice. We are saved by receiving God's gift of salvation through faith, Trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting that he died in our place. Maybe you need to do that today, my friend. Maybe you need to take some time and just remember that. If you're already a believer, you need to come back to the cross. And you need to thank Jesus. You need to worship him. You need to rest in his grace and his mercy. Realizing that he paid the price for your life. But maybe you need to receive Jesus today as the Lord of your life. You've never done that, or you're walking in rebellion right now with your back turned to the Lord. Listen, if you do, you can do that right now by praying a very simple prayer. And may I invite you to do that today? May I encourage you not to wait another minute to receive Jesus, to receive his love for you? 
Don't wait another minute to be forgiven for your sin and to be cleansed from all the guilt that you're carrying. Don't wait another minute to surrender your life to the God who loves you and died for you so that you could have eternal life instead of an eternity in judgment and damnation. You see, when Paul says, let all those who love not the Lord Jesus be accursed, that word accursed is the strongest imaginable. It means to be separated forever. It means to be under judgment. But Jesus doesn't want you to be under judgment. He wants you to be saved by trusting in him. And if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus this morning, please, I would ask that you would pray with me now.